Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. When you clothe government officials, including particularly police officers, with these awesome powers, the power to arrest, the power to take life, and we equip them with weapons to do that, it's incredibly important how much accountability comes with that. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Jane Koston, senior politics reporter at Vox, and today my guest is Clark Neely, vice president for criminal justice at the Cato Institute. Today, we are talking about qualified immunity. Qualified immunity is the doctrine that has led to many police officers not really facing the consequences of their actions through a protection that actually applies to all public sector employees, but is generally used most when it comes to policing. We talked about the history of qualified immunity, how the Supreme Court has invented and interpreted qualified immunity, and we talked about the challenges faced to ending or eliminating qualified immunity altogether. So without further ado, here is Clark Neely. Clark Neely, thank you so much for joining me on The Weeds. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So we're talking about qualified immunity, and it's interesting that we're doing this on this day in which the Supreme Court has decided it does not want to talk about qualified immunity. But I want to back up because there's been a lot of conversation about ending qualified immunity or changing qualified immunity, but no real conversation about what it actually is. Because I think a challenge for many people is that qualified immunity is not a law. In fact, it's an interpretation of a law. And so I'd like to go a little bit into the history of qual- of qualified immunity, which involves talking a little bit about Section 1983. And so if you could kind of get us from this law that is passed in its earliest form in 1871, how we get from there to this moment in which qualified immunity exists as a doctrine that no one likes, but the Supreme Court appears unwilling to challenge. Yeah, it's a lot to unpack, but we can do it pretty quickly. Yeah, the first question is when you when you clothe government officials including particularly police officers with these awesome powers, the power to arrest, the power to take life and we equip them with weapons to do that, it's incredibly important how much accountability comes with that. And as you noted, in 1871, Congress enacted what was then known as the Enforcement Act, otherwise known as the Ku Klux Klan Act, And it provided that individual citizens could vindicate their rights in federal court by pursuing a civil lawsuit against the government official that they believe violated their rights. And it read the same then as it reads today. And here's how it reads. Any state actor, that means anybody employed by the state or by a city, shall be liable to the party injured for the deprivation of any rights. Shall be liable for the deprivation of any rights. And for a variety of reasons, Section, what we now call Section 1983, that's the language I just quoted, didn't really do a lot of work for many years. Uh, the courts 
created a number of kind of obstacles to people who might want to pursue uh, remedies in court. And it wasn't until the middle of the 20th century that the court really started building out what we now recognize as its kind of modern individual rights jurisprudence. That's really the first time that people would have had much opportunity to use Section 1983 to really go and try to vindicate their rights in court. And right around that time, the Supreme Court began to invent this doctrine called qualified immunity. And the first case purported to be uh, an interpretation of the statute in which the court held that police who act in good faith, meaning they enforce a law that at the time they thought was valid and only later is that law struck down, well, they shouldn't be subjected to civil liability. And what started as a kind of a small and probably to most people sensible sounding seed grew into this huge tree of injustice that we call qualified immunity. And the real turning point was in a 1982 case called Harlow, in which the Supreme Court expanded this narrow exception to what we now recognize as the modern qualified immunity doctrine. And here's the key move. As you recall, the language of the statute says that a state actor shall be liable to the person injured for the deprivation of any rights. What the Supreme Court did effectively was to insert two words into that statute. And so now, in order to sue a police officer or other government official, you have to show that the right in question was, quote unquote, clearly established. So now you can only sue for the deprivation of a clearly established right. And those two words, clearly established, do an astonishing amount of work in real life because what they require in practical effect is for somebody who wants to sue a police officer or other government official to show that the precise thing that was done to you, that you claim violates your rights, was done to somebody else and a court in your same jurisdiction has already said that the exact same conduct is a rights violation. And if the thing that was done to you isn't already the subject of a pre-existing case, you are going to have your case thrown out of court on qualified immunity grounds, even if everybody agrees that your rights were violated. That won't matter. All that matters is whether you can point to this factually identical pre-existing case. And if you can't, you are toast. It's interesting because if you go back and look at some of these cases in which qualified immunity has played in, qualified immunity involves a two-part test. So there's the first part is, were your rights violated? And in so many of these cases, the answer is absolutely yes. And we're going to put a couple of these cases in the show notes. But one of the more notable ones is Hart v. Board of Commissioners, which took place in Kansas which involves the police mistaking, allegedly, gardening supplies for drugs. And so, as we'll put in this in this case, the court ruled, yes, your Fourth Amendment rights were infringed upon. But those rights appear not to have been clearly established. That second part of that test. And it's interesting, though, because, you know, we have cases that we'll put in the show notes in which the police officers steal money from people which is not just a violation of the civil rights of the individual, but also illegal in its own right. Why would a police officer, not just violating the rights that they may not have hypothetically, let's take that example, may not have known about, but violating another law? You're not supposed to steal money from anyone. That's illegal. In that case, why would those officers have gotten qualified immunity? 
Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And it really is that perverse. I mean, you might think that you and I are just caricaturing it and we're making stuff up. We're not making stuff up. That's an actual case. That's, that one's called Jessup versus City of Fresno, California. And you're exactly right. The Ninth Circuit held that although it may be immoral and everybody knows that it's immoral to steal, because we don't have a case here in the Ninth Circuit that tells police officers that they cannot steal while executing a search warrant, which is what was happening in that case, then they get qualified immunity. And, you know, we're not saying it's okay what they did. We're just saying that we have to grant qualified immunity, dismiss the case because there wasn't a pre-existing case on point. And that's, I think, a really powerful illustration of how completely unmoored the qualified immunity doctrine has come from any rationale. This idea that, you know, it enables cops to avoid liability for split-second decisions they make in the field, that's the classic rationale that's articulated for it. But the idea that police officers who make a conscious decision to steal somebody's personal property while executing a search warrant are entitled to any sort of legal protection is bonkers. And yet, that's where we've gotten to. It becomes almost like a, uh, I I think of qualified immunity as almost a, um, uh, it's not really even a legal framework anymore. It's simply a signal from the Supreme Court to the lower courts that they should bend over backwards and engage in all manner of creative reasoning to ensure that uh, police and other government officials are almost never held liable and then just sort of, you know, work your way backwards from there. But be, be clear, that's the end result that you should reach in most cases is that the police officer or other government official should get a free pass from civil liability. And then, you know, you as the lower court should just work out how that happens. So qualified immunity rests on the idea that this is what English common law used to look like, which is fascinating because at no point did anyone, you know, there was no Congress that said actually Uh, government actors should have protections against liability. The argument is that they traditionally did. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know there's been some debate. Uh, There's an article from the California Law Review that we'll drop in the show notes that goes into whether or not that was ever true. But it's interesting to have a legal doctrine resting on an interpretation of history that may not have been true in the first place. Well, unfortunately, the Supreme Court, that's sort of a specialty of theirs. And I, I hate to be disparaging because I usually they, they at least try to get the history right. But your description is is accurate. The stated rationale for the purported interpretation of Section 1983 as creating an exception for law enforcement officers acting in good faith. If you go back and look at the rationale the Supreme Court employed in the Harlow case from 1982 and even before then, Uh, There does seem to be this, I don't even know whether to call it a belief, but an assertion that if you kind of look sideways and squint enough, you'll see in the English common law this kind of a defense. In other words, the defense that enables a government actor to avoid liability when they were acting in good faith. As Will Bode demonstrates in that article that you described titled, Is Qualified Immunity Unlawful? That's just a complete fiction. It's just made up. In fact, it goes exactly the other way. It was amazing how uh, exposed government actors were back then and how easy it was to hold them liable. There's even a case from the 1800s where an American naval captain was specifically ordered by the president to seize a Danish ship that was exiting a French port. And it turned out that the law only permitted him to seize the ship when it was entering the port. But he was acting under orders from the president of the United States and the U.S. Supreme Court said, hey, you know what? It's a pretty sympathetic situation and our inclination might be to give you a free pass, but that's not what the law provides. And that captain, that American captain who who illegally seized a ship under orders from the U.S. 
president was ultimately held liable. Now, what happened, and I think this kind of points us in an interesting direction, is that Congress passed a special bill to indemnify that sea captain so he didn't have to pay for that out of his own pocket. And that points us in an, you know, an interesting direction here. But this idea that there were these, uh, you know, this giant shopping cart full of free passes back during the common law or, or in common law days is just a complete fiction. Uh, but it is the fiction that underlies the Supreme Court's rationale for qualified immunity. It's interesting you bring up indemnification because that's been something that people who think that qualified immunity should remain in place as a legal doctrine have argued that with the end of qualified immunity, if you sued an individual police officer who, for example, stole $250,000 from your house, that he himself would be liable. But if you work for the state, in no case would you be liable. In 99% of cases, it would be the police department or the school or the school district or in any of these examples that would be paying for any of this. Exactly right. And believe it or not, you actually managed to understate it just barely, but you did understate it. According to a 2014 law review article, it's actually 99.98% of all dollars paid out in civil rights claims come not out of the individual officer's pocket, but out of our pockets, the taxpayer, because that officer will be indemnified by the city or the department. And so this idea that if we eliminate qualified immunity, we'll be exposing police officers to massive liability and they'll lose their houses, their retirement accounts, et cetera, et cetera, is another complete fiction. It has nothing to do with the real world. And I think it's frankly kind of shameful uh, how many people, police and others, who our proponents who are supporters of the qualified immunity doctrine will peddle this fiction that if we get rid of it, somehow it'll uh, be a direct financial threat to the well-being of individual police officers because nothing could be further from the truth. They hardly ever pay out damages out of their own pocket now, and they will hardly ever pay out damages out of their own pocket then. So I'm interested because you see this clear moment in the 1960s and 1970s in which qualified immunity is introduced as a concept, even though it is based on a tradition that may not have existed. It was interesting because in the dissent to the Supreme Court turning down those 12 cases, Justice Clarence Thomas mentions that the historical reasoning for qualified immunity raises some questions, but he's like, eh, we'll move on. But can you tell me a little bit about the context for a case like Pearson versus Ray and the, in, you know, the introduction of a good faith defense? So much of our conversation about policing in general is based on an understanding that the police officer was generally acting in good faith, as in he or she was trying to do the right thing in our understanding, even if that now what we're looking at is a clear violation of the law, the laws that we expect police officers as agents of the state to follow and uphold. So can you tell me a little bit more about the context in which these legal arguments start being made? So the Pearson case that you refer to uh, was a 1967 case uh, in which I think it was two police officers were enforcing a law that segregated a, you know, cross-country bus facility. And at the time they enforced that law, it was understood to be constitutional, to be a valid law. And it was only later that the law ended up being struck down. And then the question is, well, can these police officers be sued for enforcing a law that at the time everybody would have thought and did think was valid. And then only later did we find out that it was unconstitutional. And I have two reactions to that. I think the first one is to recognize that that would be a defensible and perhaps even desirable policy 
But second, it's not the policy that Congress chose. It is really not the job of the courts to try to participate in the policymaking process, you know, and maybe to look at a uh, a law like Section 1983 and say, hey, you know, that's got some pretty sharp edges and it, it sometimes produces some unjust results. And, you know, maybe we should soften that a little bit. That might be a good idea, but it's no business of the courts to do it. The court's job is to simply interpret and apply the law as written. So that's that's my response there. And, and uh, I think the second point I would make would be to say that in so many cases, when you give police a special defense like qualified immunity, it's really kind of a double dip for them or two bites at the apple. And the reason for that is this. The mere fact that a police officer commits a an act of force or trespasses on your property or something like that doesn't necessarily mean that that person, the police officer, will be liable because most of the constitutional standards that we're talking about, unreasonable use of force, unreasonable search and seizure, they have a built-in subjectivity factor. That word unreasonable, it is unreasonable to use too much force, but then the question becomes how much force is too much? And guess who gets to decide that? a jury. The thing that's so tragic about qualified immunity is that it systematically takes out of the hands of community members the opportunity to help set the standards and to help set the policy and, and, and the baseline in terms of communicating to police officers what we expect from them, what we expect from them, from them when it comes to the use of lethal force, how to uh, handle uh, people out in the you know in the field in terms of like when to take them into custody, how far to push the limits of their authority. And that's the body that should be making those decisions. It's the body that the founders of this country expected to be making those decisions. And instead, the community is almost completely removed from that kind of policymaking, baseline setting and feedback loop that the Constitution contemplated that they would have. And it's, it's, it's one of the really great unrealized or unremarked tragedies of the qualified immunity doctrine that it prevents so many cases from going to a jury that, that if they had gone to the jury, it would have been an opportunity for the community to send a message to law enforcement in terms of the verdict that they that they rendered in that case. And that almost never happens now. It's fascinating because there's a, a case from about 11 years ago, Pearson v. Callahan. We've been talking a lot about that two-part test of did you violate the civil rights, either protected federally or constitutionally, of this individual? And then that qualified immunity question about whether or not these rights were clearly established. And Pearson v. Callahan was just like, actually, you don't. Who who cares about the first part? The second part, you get qualified immunity anyway. But it seems to me that this is, to me, egregious and unconstitutional. And yet we have the Supreme Court doesn't want to examine it, despite having so many fantastic examples of cases where they could start answering this question. But also for people who are looking at real deal reform to reform police and to reform the act of policing, we've heard from uh, Senator Tim Scott, the Republican over the weekend, saying that reforming or ending qualified immunity is off the table. Can you explain in kind of as we've been talking about good faith, what is the good faith reason why qualified immunity would be or why ending qualified immunity would be harmful or why this type of reform is not being taken up by the people who would have the power in Congress to change it. Yeah, I wish I knew the answer to that question. I would certainly try to talk uh, Senator Scott and others uh, out of that perspective. I I don't get it. I frankly don't get it. Uh, 
I think you either do or you don't realize the incredibly prominent role that qualified immunity plays in our near zero accountability policy for law enforcement. So maybe that's a point to consider is that first, perhaps they dispute incorrectly, in my view, that we in fact have a near zero accountability for policy for law enforcement because we emphatically do. And then even if they acknowledge that maybe we have insufficient accountability in our system, they dispute where that comes from or why that is. And I think it's only fairly recently that people have started to try to get their their head around this doctrine of qualified immunity and to try to properly evaluate its true role in our system. And the truth of the matter is that qualified immunity is the cornerstone of our near zero accountability policy for law enforcement. And I think if you acknowledge that, if you're prepared to accept that that is a true statement, then I don't see how anybody could oppose the elimination or at the very minimum, the substantial revision and diminishment of qualified immunity and and narrowing it to something like that original good faith standard that you and I discussed a moment ago. So I wish I could, I wish I could get inside the heads of people who oppose it. I, I try to credit good faith and good motives to people who disagree with me until I've, you know, absent clear and convincing evidence otherwise. And I'm not prepared to write off people who don't agree with us yet on qualified immunity as acting in bad faith. But I do have a very difficult time understanding how somebody who really gets uh, how qualified immunity works and the role it plays in our system. I I, I do not understand how uh, somebody who really gets it uh, could oppose the elimination of qualified immunity. It makes no sense to me. So I think that, um, and I, I will put on my libertarian hat for right now, because qualified immunity does not apply only to police officers. And I think that that actually might be for many um, Democrats and liberals who are observing this process, who are thinking like ending qualified immunity seems great. However, qualified immunity also applies to public sector employees of all kinds. Can you talk a lot about that a little bit? Because I think that that is a particular challenge in that, let's say, you know, if you are a public sector employee whose job it is to enforce laws against a form of discrimination, qualified immunity protects you from being sued over that. Can you talk a little bit about how it applies outside of the criminal justice world? There's a couple answers to that. Yes, it does apply to other uh, public officials besides police officers, but it doesn't come up all that much outside the law enforcement uh, context because people don't have all that much interaction with other government actors besides police. Public teachers, sure. You know, maybe you go to the library, uh, but day in and day out, most people are not interacting uh, with government officials and and definitely not under the kind of fraught circumstances where you're likely to feel that some really significant right has been violated and definitely not under circumstances where there's likely to be a significant injury, whether a physical injury or a psychic injury of being abused in the way that, that people feel that they are so often abused by police. So yeah, both things are true. It is true that, that qualified immunity protects other government officials besides police officers, and that certainly is a consideration. But I'm skeptical about how just how often uh, other government officials are interacting with people in such a way uh, that that their conduct gives right to plausible civil rights claims that people are likely to pursue. I can give you one example, though. There was a case in the U.S. Supreme Court back in 2009 called Safford School District versus Redding, where school officials were on the hunt for uh, a uh, basically a Motrin tablet that had been reported to be, you know, somehow made its way into the school with one of the students. And they decided that a 13-year-old girl named Savannah Redding 
might be in possession of it. And so they dragged her into the nurse's office and subjected her to a strip search without advising her parents, without waiting for them to get there. They just, you know, subjected to her strip search. And the Supreme Court granted qualified immunity in that case. Well, guess what? I think those people should have been subjected to civil liability. And I think they should feel the sting of that uh, plainly uh, inappropriate decision. And by the way, that was one of those uh, crazy cases where the court says, uh, yes, this was unconstitutional. It violated this girl's rights. But because there wasn't a case on point, these teachers and administrators couldn't have known better than to subject a 13-year-old girl to a strip search looking for a single Motrin tablet. I just think that's nuts. And I don't think, you know, that's a very sympathetic response that, that people like that uh, need to be protected by some special immunity doctrine. Again, to, to stick to this theme, they're not automatically liable because they did this thing but they have to go in front of a jury and explain why it seemed reasonable to them at the time. And if they can't, then they should be held liable. Yeah, it's interesting how many qualified immunity cases rest on the bedrock of these police officers are idiots and we must assume that they are idiots or else something bad will happen. Because so many of these cases, like the presumption is that if you are a police officer, you're an agent of the law, you would understand the constitutional rights which you are supposed to be upholding. And yet qualified immunity is like, but how could they possibly not know? And I'm, I'm, I know that it has to do with, a, you know, were these cases in these districts? But at a certain point, if you're a police officer, you know that you're not supposed to, for instance, I believe there was a case and I'm happy to be corrected if I'm wrong, but I believe did qualified immunity apply to the case of the police officer who asked a student to masturbate in front of him because he needed to get a photograph of his penis to prove whether or not it was involved in a sexting case? Very close call. It was actually a two-to-one decision from the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. So one judge on that panel, it was a three-judge panel, one judge actually felt that that officer should be entitled to qualified immunity and not have to answer for that conduct. But everything you just said about the case is exactly what happened. Yes. Fantastic. What a great time we're all having. Um, So I think that that actually gets at something I want to talk to you about, which is that qualified immunity is not just a overarching legal doctrine. It is incredibly widely used. Um, in 2015, there were, I believe, about 844 qualified immunity decisions, and 72% of those received qualified immunity. Is this just lower court saying, like, until we hear otherwise, we're just going to keep doing this? Because this seems inoperable as a moving as a moving forward system. Yeah, one of the biggest mistakes that people make is taking the Supreme Court at face value when it says things about qualified immunity. Um, I'll have people, for example, who will try to correct me and say, you know, the Supreme Court has said repeatedly that you don't need to find a case with nearly identical facts in order to show that a right was clearly established. And as a constitutional litigator, I, I tend to kind of snicker at that because everybody who knows what they're doing in this line of work understands that what matters is not simply what the Supreme Court says. What often matters even more is what the Supreme Court does. And what the Supreme Court has done over and over and over again for the past several decades is to consistently reverse lower courts that deny qualified immunity on the grounds that the principle of the matter at issue in a particular case was well enough established that you don't need a case directly on point. So the Supreme Court has a tendency to talk out of both sides of its mouth here. They'll, they'll, they'll go back and forth between saying, well, you need a case that's similar, but it doesn't have to be identical, blah, blah, blah. But if you look at what they actually do, they are constantly reversing lower courts for withholding qualified immunity on the grounds that the, you know, the principle was well enough established that you didn't need an identical case. So they're sending, the Supreme Court is sending an absolutely unmistakable message to 
to lower courts to A, grant qualified immunity unless there's a virtually identical case on point, and B, to perform whatever mental gymnastics might be necessary in that particular case to figure out a way uh, to let the, the government off the hook. That Those are two very clear signals that the Supreme Court has sent lower courts based on the way it has actually resolved cases. Uh, and, and if you and if you look at that, in, in addition to what they're saying, the, the picture that emerges is unmistakably clear. Let's take a quick break. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. So in... News that could be read by some as being good. There are a couple of legislative proposals to deal with qualified immunity. There's one coming from uh, Representative Justin Amash, and that there are ones coming from Democrats. Representative Amash's policy idea, I think, goes further than those of the Democrats, because his would just be eliminating qualified immunity writ large including qualified immunity for public sector employees, as we discussed. Can you talk about the differences beyond those between those two plans and kind of get your thoughts on what these might look like? Right. So you're right. Uh, Representative Amash's proposal or his bill, I should say, goes the furthest of any of the ones that have yet been introduced or even really discussed. And it's a complete elimination of qualified immunity. And I would say that's absolutely my favorite approach. Doesn't mean it's the only approach, uh, but I think this is one of those situations where the situation that has been created, it is such a mess. And the the, the scope of the injustices uh, is such that I think anything short of a complete repeal just creates a situation where most of the badness that's going on right now is likely to, to remain in the system one way or the other. That being said, you're absolutely right. There are some Democrats that have made uh, different uh, proposals about uh, essentially dialing back qualified immunity, but not completely eliminating it. And so this would include, for example, eliminating qualified immunity for uh, law enforcement, but not for other government employees, leaving some kind of a good faith exception. Uh, there are different permutations, but I think what's going on here is that what we're looking at is sort of the intermix between what we might call ideal policy, which again, in my view, is just getting rid of qualified immunity root and branch, and the world of practical politics, which is to state the obvious, uh, the fact that you need to get a majority in both houses and then a bill that the president will either sign or that you are confident uh, you can override uh, in the form of a veto. Whether we can possibly get there before, let's say, January, I'm not so sure. But I also think that some people maybe are about to get a big wake-up call in November. So you, you said that some people might be 
able to get a big wake-up call in November. This seems to me, when I talk about ending qualified immunity with conservatives, with liberals, with basically anyone, because I will talk about qualified immunity with pretty much anyone, you get bipartisan support for ending qualified immunity from a constitutional basis. There is no textual basis for qualified immunity. It appears to have been grafted on based on an understanding of history that is not true. And it also, from conservative perspective, it allows public sector employees to get off the hook for violations of the civil liberties or the civil rights of individuals. And from a liberal perspective, qualified immunity, as we've seen in some of the cases that the Supreme Court turned down, for instance, we'll put this all in the show notes, in Corbett v. Vickers, where you have a police officer who shoots a 10-year-old in the back of the knee because he was actually trying to shoot a dog. And you know we have these repeated cases in which officers of the law are able to use qualified immunity to violate the civil liberties and the civil rights of individuals because of this preset legal doctrine. So we we appear to have a lot of energy on both sides of the political aisle to do something about qualified immunity. We have some plans. Do you think that the moment is right for Congress to get into this debate more more fulsomely? Clearly, the Trump administration does not really want to have this argument or this discussion. But I'm interested to see what you think the future of qualified immunity looks like, because it, it's, it's you know, the Supreme Court at a certain point will have to deal with this, one would think. I couldn't agree more. And I think the only question is, what does it look like and when does it happen? But the idea that there will be no significant change to qualified immunity doctrine for the foreseeable future, I think is we can almost rule it out in large measure because the police are going to keep on doing the things that have brought the national cauldron to such a boil right now. I mean, look at the anger and the and the the frustration that's spilling out into the streets. That's not coming from nowhere. That's not made up. Those are not sort of whimsical feelings. Those feelings come from a correct perception on the part of many people that we have a massive double standard in this country in terms of the level of accountability to which we as ordinary citizens are held by law enforcement versus the level of accountability that they permit themselves to be held to, which is virtually none. That double standard, that massive differential in terms of of, of accountability, depending whether you are or are not a member of law enforcement, is unsustainable. I have no doubt whatsoever about it. Now, what is exactly the path that reform is going to take? I can't say because I can't look into a crystal ball. But what I can say is that this is a bell that cannot, in my judgment, be unrung. People now understand that qualified immunity really is the cornerstone of our near zero accountability policy for law enforcement, and they are not going to stand for it uh, indefinitely. So how, what does it end up looking like? Who comes over and crosses which divide and gets together with who? I couldn't tell you. But am I absolutely confident that within the, within the let's say, the next couple of years, uh, qualified immunity doctrine is going to look significantly different than it does today? I'm pretty confident. So I want to go back a little bit because we talked about some of the case precedents that resulted in our understanding of qualified immunity. And I think that as someone who is not a a legal beagle, I'm interested in 1982, you have Harlow v. Fitzgerald, as we discussed, which introduces the concept of the clearly established standard. And I think that this is one of those legal questions where what that means gets kind of glossed over. When the court says clearly established, 
What do they mean? Because clearly what I think clearly established means and what the Supreme Court has ruled time and time again, it thinks clearly established means in terms of constitutional violations, in terms of bad actions taken by police officers that cannot possibly be interpreted as a misunderstanding. You know, you have these clear cut cases in which individuals are strip searched, individuals have money and items taken from them. And in all, uh, many of those cases, you have that two-pronged test where, yes, this is unconstitutional. Yes, they get qualified immunity. So what does clearly established even mean here? Yeah, that's, that is a fantastic question. A very difficult question to answer, but I'll, I'll do my best. I think I, my suspicion is this. My suspicion is that clearly established back in 1982 came from a somewhat defensible place. In other words, when you're out there in the street as a police officer or other government official, things come up that, you know, are just kind of unique. And and it's not reasonable to expect a police officer or frankly, anybody. I mean, even if you're a constitutional lawyer, it's not reasonable to suppose that you can perfectly assess every situation, you know, and decide under the specific facts of the situation that I'm confronted with, where is the constitutional line so that I don't cross it. And I think the clearly established standard was probably the original impulse was to create, you know, kind of a zone of safety for police officers that that make a good faith and earnest and not crazy attempt to discern where that line is. And maybe they just kind of got one toe across it and 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 they they're in, should be entitled to some leeway for that. But, you know, if even if it started off that way, which I'm not sure that it did, but let's say provisionally that it did, it has morphed into something so different that it's that it's unrecognizable. And it's there's a there's a word that's important to bring up here, and it's called formalism. And formalism is just a fancy word uh, for kind of a knee-jerk tendency to do a particular thing. So in this case, uh, clearly established, I think, has really developed just into a knee-jerk tendency to side with the government official, the police officer, or whomever it, it may be. And I'll give you an example that's that's quite recent out of um, uh, Texas, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals covers the state of Texas along with Mississippi and Louisiana. And there was a case out of Texas where uh, a man was in jail awaiting trial. And there's a bedrock constitutional principle that you're not allowed to punish somebody before they've actually been convicted of a crime. So when you're holding somebody in jail awaiting trial, you're not allowed to subject them to some of the same kinds of punishing conditions or punishments that you would you would be otherwise. I don't think that's really relevant to this case, but I think it's at least provides some context for what's about to come next. The allegation in his complaint is that the cell that he was held in was completely caked with human feces on every single flat surface. The walls, the ceiling, the floor, and also that there was not even a mattress. There was no bed, no mattress, and there was simply a drain that had backed up so he was in an open sewer and and he had to sleep in sewage. And they held him under these conditions for six days. And there's no dispute that all of this is true. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals applied qualified immunity to let the people who kept him in those conditions off the hook. Why? Because that exact case wasn't already on the books. So the right to not be held in an open sewer for six days before you'd even been convicted of anything was not clearly established in the Fifth Circuit. That 
is an example of formalism. That What I mean by formalism is you already know what the result in the case is going to be, namely that the government gets off the hook and you simply work backwards from there. That is an indefensible decision, uh, and I'm proud to say that we're helping the attorneys in that case try to present it to the Supreme Court, although today's developments are pretty discouraging, but they, uh, uh, they will try to get the Supreme Court to overturn the Fifth Circuit decision and hold. I mean, you know what? You know what's kind of astonishing about that case? If you held a dog in those conditions. In fact, people have been prosecuted for holding dogs and other animals in those conditions, and they have absolutely been convicted for felonies for holding animals in those conditions. But when a bunch of jailers in Texas hold a human being in those conditions, the Fifth Circuit says, well, how could they have known? It's not clearly established that you shouldn't do that to another human being. It's preposterous. It's interesting because I've been thinking a lot about formalism and even kind of you see that across the political space that if you have a thing that has been in place, the urge to overturn that thing is so low. I mean, it kind of speaks to our our bias towards incumbents and politics, why it's so difficult to get bad legislators out of office is almost because they're already there and getting rid of them would be too difficult. And I think you see that here where it's not like it doesn't seem to be a great not many people who are enthusiastic about qualified immunity, but it just it exists as a doctrine. And no one has said, what if it didn't or overturned it or taken the real deal steps to deal with it? And it's it's deeply concerning because you see in so many qualified immunity cases that they're basically like when you read these majority opinions, you can you can hear these justices saying like this is very, very bad. And I am going to rule this way. I'm going to give this person qualified immunity because that's what the statute says I should do. But I clearly do not want to be doing this. That's such a smart comment. And I, I hesitate to even add to it because it's so smart. I think I can only diminish the smartness of it. But I'll, but I'll say really quickly two things. Um, first, I agree with everything that you said. And economists have a term that they use to describe a situation like this. It's sticky. So they describe things as sticky that are difficult to change in a certain direction. And uh, and I think that's a really great insight that, that, in a sense, qualified immunity is a sticky doctrine. Uh, no matter how many, you know, you would think that, that as unjust and uh, outrageous as it is, it would have been changed by now. But for a variety of reasons, I think it has been sticky. That doesn't mean we're stuck with it, but it is very difficult. Clearly, it's been very difficult to change. Um, one other thing I want to add, though, is that the judiciary is not uniformly checked out on this. And there have been a couple of decisions just in the last week uh, where courts of appeals have rejected qualified immunity. And there was actually one uh, in the Fourth Circuit where I'm presently located, where they specifically invoked George Floyd's name and said, this has got to stop. So there is a ray of sunshine. And I want to really call out one judge in particular, and I'll, I'll come out and say that he's a, a friend of mine, but he's also a real hero in the qualified immunity space. His name is Don Willett, and he's a judge on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals down there in Texas. And he has been the leading critic in the lower courts of the qualified immunity doctrine, and he has missed not a single opportunity to lay it on thick and to make sure that the Supreme Court knows that there's at least one lower court judge who's seen through all of this. Um, and now he's still bound to apply qualified immunity within the you know the corners that the Supreme Court has described, but he's also allowed to tell uh, you know to write his own opinion saying what he thinks about it, and he's laid it on thick and he's right. Now, there are other judges as well, but he's been the most articulate. Uh, proponent of reconsidering qualified immunity. And, and when you see that going on in the lower court, just relentless criticism of a Supreme Court doctrine, uh, just in the Washington Post this weekend, there was a sitting Fourth Circuit judge, Fourth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, uh, who wrote an op-ed 
in the one of the, the, the national papers of record criticizing qualified immunity and urging the Supreme Court to get rid of it. Uh, I, I've never seen in 20 years as a constitutional litigator. I've never seen that. Yeah, it's, it seems like the energy and the appetite is here across the spectrum to do something about qualified immunity. It's just that the Supreme Court, which is the entity that needs to take this on, needs to answer this question so that these questions can be put forth to juries or members of Congress. They just ha have not seemed willing to do it. Well, thank you so much, Clark. This has been can something be both fantastic and depressing? Because I feel as if that's in this, that's the moment I am having right now. You just described my entire professional life. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Clark. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. That's our show for today. Thank you so much to Clark for joining me. And please take a look at our show notes because we dropped in a lot of case information and a lot of details on qualified immunity that will help explain the conversation that we were having. Thank you so much to Jeff Geld for producing this. And The Weeds is a Vox Media Podcast Network production. Mm -hmm.